If the General Services Administration is at the heart of much of federal procurement, my next guest is at the center of the GSA. He's the agency's senior procurement executive and chairman of the U.S. Ability One Commission, and now he's a presidential rank award winner. As part of this week's series of rank award winners, Jeffrey Kosis joins me now. Jeff, good to have you back. I'm delighted to be here, Tom. Thank you so much. And you really have been at the heart of a lot of GSA's procurement and vehicle work over the years, a kind of ceaseless effort. I recall your work on the general schedules, the plain old venerable GS system, which is really quite different from what it was many years ago. Talk about your own career highlights. What do you think is the best stuff? Tom, upon graduating college, I figured, you know, there's no better place than D.C. for a history and political science major. Came down here quickly received a job from GSA, and it was a management development program in acquisition. Let me use that as the chance to tell what I'd like to think of as my procurement origin story. It's a few years later. I returned from paternity leave following the birth of my first child and find out I'd been moved to a new job. I was now the contracting officer on GSA's contract with the airlines, the official travel contracts city pair program. So pictured, it's first day back. Director calls me in the office. He tells me, I've got this new job. He hands me a stack of protests to answer. He tells me that the contract <laughs> specialist on the team has been working 80 hours a week for six months and would be off for a while. Oh, and by the way, Jeff, we're five months behind in the next contracts, annual contracts at that. So here I am. I'm adjusting to the new baby, the new job. I immediately catch cold. So if you picture it, it's 2 a.m. I'm walking the house with this colicky baby. I'm talking to him all about the protests and about how we're going to answer these protests. So, well, that's one know, way to raise the next generation, I suppose, it, is to kind of inculcate I, uh, them early. Too early, can we? By the way, what year was that? Because uh, the airline industry has changed itself so much since those days. Uh, it has changed immensely. This is uh, the mid-1990s. You know, maybe it's the high fever, but I have three thoughts uh, from this experience. And those are thoughts that I've really built my career around ever since. First, we need to take care of the acquisition workforce. We need smart, effective buying strategies that are using and leveraging automation and communication. In this case, had we simply talked to the airlines, we wouldn't be dealing with these protests. We needed helpful, productive industry relationships. And ever since, as I've moved between operation and policy jobs, those are the thoughts I kept in mind. And I'd suggest ultimately, that's what led me into the role as GSA's senior procurement exec. And there, I ended up as GSA's representative to the Ability One Commission, the small federal agency that provides job opportunities for people who are blind or have significant disabilities. And there, my fellow members elected me as commission chair. Wow. So you have done a lot of things. But I think central to this is the idea that procurement and acquisition sound maybe to the generalized ear as really dull, arcane things is actually a fascinating and dynamic type of activity, aren't they? Definitely. I had no idea that I would had such a love and interest in acquisition, but upon entering GSA and starting to see just how much acquisition is behind everything else, how much it actually makes the federal government run and operate, that brought that out for me. And over the course of my career, I look how much government has changed. Over the last three and a half decades, the mission of what we asked the government to do, that has grown immensely. But the size of the federal workforce, that has not changed. So how do we make that up? It is with our federal contractors. And so I've always found acquisition is at the center of so many other issues, offstage, but making everything else work. 
And have you found, uh, this is something another acquisition executive mentioned to me a couple of months ago, something I didn't realize, is that to business majors, people coming out at the collegiate level, federal acquisition and federal procurement are actually attractive fields to them. Very definitely. Uh, we have a lot of business majors who move into that. Uh, uh, until recently, uh, there was a statute requiring uh, folks had to have a degree or at least 24 semester hours of that degree in business-related uh, disciplines. But I'd also suggest it's a really important field for people who have studied liberal arts, uh, people who have strong writing skills. Because acquisition, it's all about telling the story. It's all about documentation. It's all about clarity in communication. We're speaking with Jeffrey Kosis. He is the senior procurement executive at the General Services Administration and a recent presidential rank award winner. And getting back to the GS schedule, this is something that anyone who's ever sold to the government in any capacity has touched on at some point in their career. And you oversaw a major revision of the GS multiple award schedule system a few years back. Maybe just review that briefly for us. Absolutely. The schedules, for those who are not familiar with it, they're really the entryway for business interested in contracting with the federal government. It covers uh, tens of millions of companies, products, services, and solutions. So central to the schedules is the whole pricing structure. The schedules are based on the idea that uh, we are offering uh, top-notch prices for the products and services available. Historically, we have used a regulatory approach to get those good prices. It's called the commercial sales practice. They're detailed disclosure statements where companies report out all about their pricing, who they charged, how much, and why. And a clause called the price reduction clause. Hey, if somebody gets a better deal than we gave the government, we're going to come back and lower their price. Uh, that was a model built in the 1980s, built in a pre-internet age. It was built at a time when the schedules were all about products from manufacturers. But what we did is say, in today's world, data is king. We've got to be able to use data instead of regulation to drive good pricing. You know, just as folks carry their phone and they can check if something's a good deal, we figured, you know, transactional data is going to be the key. So we went through the rulemaking process, we developed a new clause, and we ran a multi-year pilot to say, can we both make the schedule easier to use, easier to get on, less regulatory uh, burden, but uh, more effective, better pricing through the use of data. And over the course of a multi-year pilot, we found out that, yes, indeed, we can produce better results, less expense by relying on market forces, not on regulation, to drive the schedules. And the schedules then have remained relevant and also a really big piece of the federal procurement dollar goes through the schedules even to this day with all of the competing GWACs and all of the many different types of task order vehicles out there. Absolutely. Uh, we see in the neighborhood of uh, $30 billion plus per year going through the schedules program. It remains the best source for our small business, small disadvantaged business. And it continues to uh, be a tremendous value for federal agencies because of the time it saves, because of the efficiency in getting to the solutions that they need. All right. So tell us a little bit more about Ability One. What's been the big change there? That's another older program that seems to evolve as times change. Ability One uh, is the primary uh, means by which, through contracts, we create jobs for people who are blind or have uh, significant disabilities. Our Billy One program last year uh, created nearly uh, 38,000 jobs for uh, our target population. We have been very much focused on modernization at the commission. Within the last uh, several months, 
we updated uh, and phased out the use of subminimum wages. For decades, there was what's called a subminimum wage. That's what it sounds like, a wage below the minimum wage for workers uh, who have disabilities. We thought that that was really an outdated relic, and we went through the regulatory process to uh, eliminate that. We created a network of what we called Ability One representatives in 21 federal agencies, act as internal champions. If you think about what does a small business specialist do for a small business program, that's what the Ability One representatives do for the Ability One program. And so it sounds like something you're pretty proud of being associated with. Absolutely. Not a role I expected to end up in, but I have found it so rewarding and so valuable and thrilled to have had that opportunity. And as we speak, you are in the office this particular day, and because you're wearing a suit and tie. That's the tip-off, isn't it? That's the tip-off. But in reality, you're only there a couple days or maybe one day a week, like so many federal office types of employees. Has the telework made things better, worse, the same? GSA has been involved at the center of telework for so many years also. I would suggest all of the above. Remote work has been fabulous in that it gives us the ability to hire the best person anywhere in the country for a job. It lets us keep our amazingly talented employees as family circumstances lead them to relocate across the country. It's also created some incredible challenges, challenges about how do you bring employees into a culture? How do you ensure that they become part of the organization, that we get the right training, the right messaging, that we form relationships? So it's an incredible management challenge. But it also gives so much flexibility and opportunities to bring high-performing people into our federal agencies. And what's your next big challenge, do you think? I don't think you're quite ready to hang it up here. Not quite yet. I'm very focused at the moment on issues involving the acquisition workforce. Within the last several days, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy updated the uh, curriculum for acquisition professionals, a hugely uh, needed move from one that we can't say enough good things about. It takes us to a uh, modern commercial curriculum. And so I'm now working closely with my uh, Chico, uh, Tracy Demartini, trying to say, okay, how do we use this as the opportunity to uh, address and to refill the talent pipeline? Because this will open the door for us to recruit, not just people who have worked in government, but it opens the door to us for people who know contracting from the industry standpoint, from state and local government, and from the nonprofit sector. In other words, if you can get the right people and give them the right information and let them go, procurement acquisition will take care of itself. Really well said. Jeffrey Kosas is Senior Procurement Executive at the General Services Administration and a recent Presidential Rank Award winner. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking 
earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Har's man. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves 
uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. 
you want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.